This episode is powered by Safety FM. Welcome to the Safety Consultant Podcast. I'm your host, Sheldon Primus. This is the show where I teach you the business of being a safety consultant. Uh, This week, we have a very special guest, Philip B. Russell. He is a board-certified OSHA and strategic labor and employment lawyer from the Tampa area, but his company, or uh, he's a shareholder at Ogletree Deacons in Tampa, and they actually are uh, pretty much, they, they go anywhere. <laughs> so he is one of those lawyers that uh, you call when OSHA shows up. I know you could call a consultant, yes. But there's some things where, you know, I'll go with an informal conference with you, but if you kind of do a notice of contest, I ain't your guy. You're going to a law office for that one. <laughs> so you're getting a lawyer. So when you lawyer up, OSHA lawyers up, and you're going to do that that uh, contest in front of your administrative law judge, call Phil. He's your guy. So uh, he has actually done over 100 fatality cases and hundreds of other type cases in his legal career. So he specializes in construction and manufacturing. Uh, You cannot go wrong with a a certified lawyer, a board certified lawyer, and truly feels uh, just his, you look him up on LinkedIn and you'll be like, what? (laughs) What's this man got time to do? Uh, He's truly like one of those uh, special type of people that even has one of those rankings where uh, he's rated and one of these big rating companies as being a top five attorneys in Florida. So uh, that's one of those things that you're like, wow. The man's got it. So I was so happy that he was able to do some time with with me. And, and we talked and kind of geeked out a little bit about, you know, the OSHA rules and the laws and different things related to that, multi-employer work sites. And it was, it was really great. Uh, I knew him through my business partner, Kevin Yarbrough, who's ex-OSHA. And uh, Yarbrough and myself have a business called Shelbro Safety. Uh, and we I met Phil along the way uh, through Yarbrough. So we had a really good time. And I really wanted him to explain a whole bunch of things OSHA related for the audience. So that's why I got him here. So have a great time listening to the episode and I will check you guys out on the flip side and that's next week. So go get them. Well, good afternoon, uh, Sheldon. Uh, I'm Philip Russell. I'm with the uh, law firm of Ogletree Deacons. We're an international law firm of labor and employment lawyers. And all we do is labor and employment law for, for businesses, for the employer side. I personally have a particular niche in OSHA law. So I have uh, gotten over the years to be a go-to lawyer, especially in the construction industry, and especially whenever there is a fatality or some other catastrophic uh, accident in the workplace that results in maybe not a fatality, but maybe an amputation, hospitalization, or something like that. I've handled hundreds of cases with OSHA across the country, mostly in Florida, but Lately, a lot up in the New York, New Jersey area, and I've handled well over 100 fatality cases, including many that were high-profile cases you would see in the news involving multiple workers. So that's what I do. I've been doing this 26 years. I learned from one of the best, a man named David Jones, who's no longer with us, but was a good friend and mentor and uh, and uh, taught me to be the OSHA lawyer I am. I'm on a team of absolutely fantastic OSHA lawyers across the country in our practice group at the firm. And, uh, and I love what I do. It uh, really makes a difference. I, you know, we're not just 
sitting in a conference room arguing about whether someone did or didn't violate the law. I get to wear boots and jeans more than I wear coats and ties. Excellent. And uh, there's a litigation aspect to what I do, and I got to put a coat and tie on if there's a judge in the room. But uh, before we get to the litigation part, I got to I go into the field, so I keep boots and jeans here in my office, ready to go. I've got safety hat, glasses, gloves, and all the PPE in my truck, ready to go. Wow! And uh, it's funny that you say you know you you got your, your jeans and everything. I just remember those uh, those early stories of lawyers who were doing depositions in their you know, hanging out in their shorts and T-shirts in front of a judge and Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've made sure that I have disabled my cat filter so that I do not appear that way on yes. my informals. I forgot about that one. That one was recent, wasn't it? It was, and it was absolutely fantastic. But it illustrates a point that I just made in my LinkedIn posting today about doing informals, OSHA informals, virtually. And one of the tips I gave in there was make sure you know your technology. It is 100% on you, the lawyer, the safety consultant, the advocate, whoever you are, to know your own technology. You can't just say, well, that's not my job. It is your job. You need to know it. Yeah, that's excellent. Wow. Uh, For the audience getting to know you, what's your background? How did you get into not only law, but then you also got into specialty? That means that there's also behind that some entrepreneurship. So you, you may have been starting earlier with, with entrepreneurship leading up to where you are now. Well, I'll tell you, I got, I go all the way back to uh, the fact that I'm a rambling wreck from Georgia Tech. So I went to Georgia Tech. I'm actually not an engineer, uh, but I did go to law school after going to tech and got into employment law, I think primarily because I did come from an entrepreneurial family. We were my, in a family of, um, that owned, my grandparents owned grocery stores back in uh, East Tennessee when I was growing up in Atlanta. We'd go visit with them. And in fact, my first job was bagging groceries in my grandparents' grocery stores. Wow. So I learned, I learned the value of hard work. I learned, you know, management from a, a, a care and heart perspective as opposed to autocratic, uh, commanding leadership style. And, how I got into safety was interesting. It only was about 10 years ago when I was doing labor law and employment law for a group of clients, mostly in the construction industry and mostly here in Florida in road and bridge building, the transportation construction industry. And I had some clients that had some accidents at work where some employees got killed uh, or, uh, or had other serious injuries and OSHA showed up. The client didn't know what to do. So they called me, and at the time, I had just joined Ogletree, and I called David Jones, who was in Atlanta at the time, and, and I said, David, what do I do? Come on down here. And he said, no, you learn it. You figure it out. I'll help you. Oh, wow. And as, a, as good mentors do, he just threw me into the ring of fire. And uh, one of the first folks I met at OSHA is uh, still an assistant area, is now an assistant area director, and has become a good friend in the advocacy sense, meaning that she's still at OSHA. We still fight hard. But we respect and like each other. And so I've learned a lot from, from my mentors like David. I've learned a lot from the folks at OSHA. But what pulled me in was clients. Clients just needed help. Hmm. Excellent. Um, what part of East Tennessee? So they had stores outside of Chattanooga and then one store outside of Knoxville. 
little bitty store named Pruitt's Food Town, which again, I'm now I'm going way back because that was back when there were family-owned grocery stores, not big box retailers today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The reason why I ask is I live two years in Cleveland. If you know where Cleveland, Tennessee is, it's right there. It is. I know exactly where it is, right near Ultawa, where one of their retirement homes was. So I know exactly where that is. Oh, yeah. So once you said that, I'm like, hold on. I may have went to his store. (laughs) 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 That's great. Well, if anybody listening to this podcast, you know, recognizes Pruitt Food Town in or around Chattanooga, my grandfather, uh, Kenneth Russell, owned about five of them at one point. And, And again, that's what I learned. That's what got me motivated to be a lawyer and to be a lawyer on the business side. And and what I've found, Sheldon, is I've actually made more of an impact on individual workers' lives being a management side lawyer than I think I would ever have made if I were an OSHA person or an OSHA lawyer or if I were a plaintiff's lawyer suing companies. Because when I get into a client and I get that trusted relationship with the client and they listen to guidance, I can make a difference. And that's been really rewarding in my career. Yeah, no, that sounds pretty good. And you've got, you know, anybody, all they need to do is look you up and they look at your career and they're like, it's like a list after list after list of things that you've done and accomplishments and ways you've given back. And so that, that just means that you're passionate about what you do. So that's, that's, and I hear it. I hear that passion. Well, you know, I'll tell you, Sheldon, I, I'm, I'm, I am a blessed man, if I may say so. You know, I have learned that, you know, I cannot claim these skills, these talents, these experiences to be mine. God has just put me in the place that he needed me to be. And my job was to just try to recognize that and do the best I can. So I just do the best I can and, and, and put the rest in God's hands. And the results have been humbling. No, and uh, you've seen OSHA go through different administrations. So when I teach my students, and I do teach for uh, a class and uh, where the outcome is the students learn compliance really deep. I'm, I'm, I'm very deep in compliance because as a consultant, you have to be. But uh, when they also get out of the class, I really uh, make sure that they understand OSHA is one of those organizations that will transition depending on what administration, meaning Republican or Democrat. And I said for, you know, for as long as I remember, and probably as long as there has been an OSHA since 71 as the administration, every time there's a Republican, OSHA is a little weaker. Uh, and that's, you know, traditional. There are some, some cases where, uh, impact of something means that OSHA has to be stronger in one particular area, such as a refinery accident or something similar to that, or a rise in a trend for some sort of a fatality. But generally speaking, they're a little bit more on compliance assistance when it's a, when it's a Republican administration. And then when it's Democratic administration, they're harder on compliance enforcement. And that's the way I've been, uh, been instructing students just, you know, be pliable, be ready for these changes when they're happened. Have I instructed these students correctly in that? Yes, absolutely. It is the carrot or the stick. Democrats like the stick. Republicans like the carrot. That simple. And I would tell your students to get ready for more sticks because they're coming. Yeah, uh, I honestly believe that. And I, I'm tossed. I have to tell you, I'm tossed. I, I understand the plight of the business owner 
and I understand that. Um, I know for selfish reasons that compliance does pay the bills, and I, I, I know you have a, a variance of that as well in your in your business. But it's not like you want to see someone get you know cited in any way. You don't want that, but you want to be there to help them if they're there, and you know there's reasons for citations, but you want you also know that is it, it is part of the way that we make money. Uh, so I'm tossed with that. Uh, do you get that as well? Well, here's the here's the dilemma. I think you, you've touched upon something that I think is very interesting. If you're a compliance officer and you are going in doing an inspection for OSHA and you don't see anything, but you're told that you need to see something, what do you do with that? Because that's the orientation right now of the agency. We know that the area offices are being told that enforcement is going to go up. We know from the inspector general's report yesterday that the government thinks that OSHA hasn't done its part. And we know that one of the implications is there will be more inspections. They are as a whole being told to inspect more workplaces and find more violations. My job on the other side is to hold the government accountable. It's that simple. The law created OSHA. In 1970, the OSHA Act said, we need a federal agency responsible for workplace safety. Passed by, many people don't know this, the Richard Nixon administration. So a Republican created OSHA and the EPA, by the way. So that's a uh, subject for another, another podcast. But an interesting history note, what's important to know is that when this agency was created, it was created... Uh, for balance, for both enforcement and for the compliance side or for the education side. But it does shift in focus. And right now, we are looking at far more enforcement. So our job, safety professionals' jobs, our job now, when I'm saying I'm talking about me and you, the folks that work with companies uh, and your listeners, our job is to hold the government accountable and to show where the line is created by that OSH Act limited by, believe it or not, the Constitution, particularly the Fourth Amendment, and what the government can and can't do. And if the government has the evidence to prove a violation, I look at my client and say, let's fix it. Let's work on it. Let's make sure it never happens again. But the government needs to cite the right violations, the right standards, and meet the right evidentiary requirements. And if they do, fine, I'll work with you. If they don't, I'm going to hold the government accountable. That's what we do. Yeah. Get any uh, citations vacated? Oh, yeah. Ooh, I like that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, believe it or not, OSHA doesn't always do what it's supposed to do. Yeah. And the beauty of it, and here's what I love, going back a little bit wonkish here, but OSHA doesn't decide if OSHA got it right. There is an independent federal agency set up in the OSHA Act in 1970. It's an agency called the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission. Is a three-member commission appointed by the president, confirmed by the Senate, and they have a group of administrative law judges that hear contests to citations. And I think that was a really brilliant way to do this because unlike the National Labor Relations Board, OSHA is not the judge, jury, and executioner. OSHA has to be held accountable before this independent agency, before the commission. And that's why it's important when you look at the inspection. I think all too often folks look at the inspection before the citation as a separate 
occurrence. It's just like a separate case. It's a separate matter. And some don't even call a lawyer to get the citation. Yeah. And I think that's, or a, good, or a good safety consultant or expert, that's a mistake. Because in OSHA, we have a chance to influence what the file looks like. That's not true in any other employment matter. We can control what the evidence looks like. Let's jump in. Let's help. Let's make sure that that evidence meets the standards it should meet so that we can we can show the commission that OSHA got it wrong. And if I can do that in the informal, OSHA will vacate the citation. Excellent. And I um, I usually tell my students whenever OSHA comes up, uh, it is a participative sport. Just don't go back and, you know, hands off and you let OSHA do what they want. I've had a client before where uh, OSHA came in and uh, in the opening conference told them that uh, we're here because someone that left your organization complained that you didn't pay for PPE. And they showed them the records of paying for PPE. And this compliance officer in Florida decided, well, while I'm here, would you mind if I open up a comprehensive inspection? And <laughs> <laughs> you, you probably know where that goes, right? Oh, yeah. yeah here, here's the, let, let me just, uh, here's yeah, the rope with it. which I'm going to hang you. Go right ahead. <laughs> well, really was what he ended up doing is saying uh, the compliance officer, it's a word can come out of his mouth, but he says, well, I'm done with this inspection, so therefore I'm going to open up another inspection. <laughs> and, and truly what you're supposed to say at that time is, respectfully, sir, I like to state the scope of this inspection, uh, unless you've seen imminent danger or something else that would warrant you going and opening up a comprehensive inspection. Uh, let's stick with the scope, <laughs> as you're right. And, uh, and that's how I, I, uh, I phrased it. But I got it afterwards. Me and Kevin uh, Yarbrough, uh, me and Yarbrough got the call later on from, from the insurance company, I, I believe, was the one who called us. And you know, we both were shaking our heads like, oh, you can't do that. <laughs> when you look at it from that view, Sheldon, I mean, you know, you guys and, and Kevin, I mean, you guys know what you're doing. But here's the, the strange thing about it. And this is what, this is why I've gone on my, my advocacy trip lately through my LinkedIn postings and talking to you is I want employers to know some of the myths. And one of those myths is that a compliance officer from OSHA is a law enforcement officer. They're not. And OSHA, the agency, doesn't have the unlimited ability to show up on any job site and just do what they want to do. They don't have those rights. And in fact, if you actually look at the statute itself, it doesn't seem to require a warrant. But that's okay because the Supreme Court very clearly said it doesn't need to say it. You're a government agency. You cannot do warrantless inspections. The only way you're on a job site is under those limited circumstances, and you have to keep the scope limited to the scope. Great points for your students. Yeah, and um, and truly I tell them if OSHA's taking a picture, you're taking a picture. If they're measuring, you're measuring, especially if you have a an IH or a calibrated instrument and you're certified to use this instrument, then all right, that could be an instrument of record and make sure that if you find a discrepancy to note to OSHA that I have found a discrepancy, discrepancy, please put that in your notes because they have the official notes. So if you don't say something, it's not going in that. And now we've got nothing to fight with if you don't put that in your notes. And uh, am I, am I steering them wrong in this one or is that about what we should be doing? No, you're spot on. And, and that's what Kevin said last week. I heard him speak to both a group of construction 
uh, folks that he and I were both at the same conference. He said the same thing, and I think that deserves some true emphasis. Asking the co-show to put something in his or her notes is something we did. We need to do. I'm going to throw one more tip at you. Ooh, yes. when, when, when the compliance officer is taking a picture, no matter how their body is contorted, laying on the ground, elbow up, right leg up, you know, pinky out, whatever it takes to take that picture, you not only do the same thing, but here's the hot tip. Ask them why they're taking that picture. Mm, nice. So because it turns out now, you know, the standard advice here is beware that even on a walk around, you might be subject to an interview. And I've seen Kosho's notes in the violation reports in litigation show what was said during the walk around. But it doesn't go both ways. So what I say to clients is don't answer their questions, but ask them a lot of questions. And one of those, my favorite one is, why are you taking this picture? Why are you looking at that piece of equipment? Why are you looking at that part of the project? See what you get. That's so simple. Why, you know, that's so simple. And, and no one really thinks of that. I didn't think of that. Uh, and that is just a simple tip of why, because I know you need to, but getting their perspective, because, and you're right, everything, uh, especially for, for those of you who, who are not OSHA compliant, and then for you that are in different countries, you have your equivalent of OSHA out there. Uh, one of the things I would tell you to look for is uh, the compliance officers must be trained on a certain level across the whole country. So therefore, we're going to have a document in some form that's going to lead them to say, here's our baseline, here's uh, our homeostasis where we'd like to be. So therefore, follow these directives. For us, it's called a field operation manual. And uh, with the field operation manual, I told my students, use that, learn that, print it at work. You don't want to print that at home, <laughs> but you want to have that. <laughs> so uh, that's one of the tips I always tell people, watch that field operation manual, learn what it is, because in that inspection, you could see exactly the wording that this compliance officer is using, and you could go in your mind, oh, wait, hold on, he's thinking of serious here, <laughs> and uh, this might be a waffle. That the wordings that he's saying to me in this conference or to say this walkthrough is leading me towards that. Uh, that's my, my experience. Have you had the same? It, it is, but I will tell you one cautionary note about that field operations manual. Uh, although OSHA would like to hold our clients, our employers, to their safety manuals and guidelines, they don't like it when we try and hold them to theirs. And in fact, that field operations manual is not a standard. It is not the law. It is just an, just what it says. It's an operations manual. And when it has been litigated, the commission has said, well, it, they don't have to strictly follow what's in the hand or what's in the, the operations manual, the FOM, FOM. And where you'll see that sometimes is I'll have a client call me up and say, wait a minute, we can get this vacated at the informal fellow because we never had a closing conference. Doesn't matter. You're not going to be able to vacate a citation for that reason. Maybe there are other reasons, but not that one. But good advice you give your students, perhaps supplement it with learn it, understand it, because what you said, Sheldon, is important. You want to know what's in his or her mind. What are they thinking? What are they doing? But don't plan to use it in your defense. It likely won't help them. Yeah. Uh, what do you do when you get that call and or, or even past a call? And you know that you're going to end up in a notice of conscious, uh, contest 
and you're going to, well, there, the notice of contest was, was given. So now you're going to sit in front of an administrative law judge. Uh, how do you prep for those, those events? Uh, you know, first things first is it's all about the people. I want to know if, if the, you know, what area office was it? What, who was the co-show involved in the inspection? Were there anyone else involved? Was there a trainee involved? That impacts my, my analysis on the case. Then I want to know if the solicitor has been assigned yet. In Region 4, Karen Mock is the head solicitor. Has Karen assigned one of her team to the case? If so, who is that person? Is it somebody I know? Likely I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, or one of my colleagues will. Uh, it could be Region 2 or one of the other regions. We have a, a large group. I also want to know if the judge has been assigned. So I begin with the people. Because I want to know who those folks are, who those decision makers are. I've done this long enough to know their tendencies and their preferences and what their focus is. The next thing I want to know is the quality of that inspection. What I need the client, preferably the best time to call me is when the accident happens, not when the citation is delivered. Because I can help in the inspection. And, and I've done it either with or without consultants. Sometimes Sheldon and I will use a consultant. We'll work together. I've done it alone. Do that way too. There's different combinations for different reasons. But when you work through that inspection, I want an, I want our file to be as closely replicated to OSHA's file as possible. So the worst case scenario is, yes, we sent a whole bunch of documents into OSHA. We don't know what we sent. We didn't track it. Yes, they did interviews, but no, we didn't take notes during the interviews. Those are problematic situations because I don't know what the case looks like. So I can't value the case at that point from a legal perspective. I can't evaluate whether the government can can establish its elements of the claims, whether we can assert any affirmative defenses. So I have to, at that point, simply start the litigation process, which gets to be expensive, time-consuming, and, and takes a while. We have to get the government's file. But even when we get it, you know this. You've seen those big black marks they love. They redact a lot of the content. So it still is not ideal. So that's what I look for. Who are the people? What's the evidence? What's the quality of the file? And let's talk about then we're going to get to this. Once I've evaluated, what is the client looking for? What's the outcome you'd like me to achieve? Have you found out sometimes they're trying to throw a hazard without exposure? Or, or vice versa, especially if in a multi-employer doctrine, when you're looking through that, uh, specifically for construction, you're looking at those multi-employer doctrines where there's the role for the exposing employer and the, uh, the, well, my understanding is, and let's make sure I'm getting this right. For whoever is going to be the controlling employer, there's only one allowed. Even though you could have multiple roles, you could be an exposing employer and you could be, uh, the correcting employer. In, in this doctrine, doctrine, but the controlling employer can only be one person, correct? I don't think that's right. Oh, good. Um, which one? <laughs> please explain, because I want to make sure I'm right myself. So please help Yeah, I, I just think that there can be multiple controlling employers, and, and I, I want to be careful here because I have some open files, open cases right now, and I don't want anyone listening to get my strategy. But I think <laughs> they're actually... I think, uh, let me just put it this way, Sheldon. OSHA certainly does not feel that it is limited to just one controlling employer per set of citations. Uh, it, it has the view that it can be multiple. And I, I will, I'll share this, I'll share this example. I have a case, I won't tell you where other than not Florida. 
where I am representing uh, all the subs and the general contractor on this construction site. We've all agreed we're not pointing fingers at each other. There's not a conflict from a legal perspective. But OSHA, the first thing we had to do was to determine with the solicitor, with the litigated case, who fits into which of those buckets. And in that case, OSHA is trying to have multiple controlling employers, multiple exposing employers, multiple creating employers. Everybody is everything to OSHA in that case. Wow. So legally speaking, no, this is where I stand on the line and say, no, no, government, you can't do that. And I think that you can have a controlling employer that's the GC, but you can also have subs that are controlling employers for their scope of work. So. Now you get into parsing out, well, then who was responsible for what on the job site? What were they supposed to do? Yeah, and then you could go even more meta as saying, at the time of this instance, when there's exposure, who was the controlling employer for this worker that was exposed? I mean, now you're really getting into my strategy for that case because that's exactly where we're going. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and, and that that would really break it down for me because truly that's the way I'm thinking, especially now that you've opened my mind a little bit more about multiple compo- uh, controlling employers. Because I always used to thought of uh, think of it as who has the purse the purse string. You know, if I were to say, you know, you follow my rules, or now I'm not going to end up paying you, or I'll just get another sub. So that's why I'd always would say just the one person that's got the ultimate control of the dollars. It is an interesting point you raise, and even you know the multi-employer citation policy is misnamed because although it is a policy that OSHA wrote a couple decades ago now, it actually has become the law of the land because when it has been litigated through the commission process, the review commission, it then has been bounced out into all of the federal circuit courts that review what the decisions are that come out of the review commission. And as of two years ago, the Fifth Circuit finally joined everyone else that looked at it. So now it universally is accepted as essentially the law. However, uh, shout out to my colleague, Art Stapper, who was around when they wrote the act and is, a, is an absolute guru. As he points out, it still isn't technically the law, Mr. Russell. He says it's still not technically the law, but it is something because it never went through the rulemaking process. But it is something your students need to really know that if they're on this margin, on this area you're talking about, it has been acknowledged that that is guidance. It is policy. But you still may have some arguments about that role. Don't just assume the role is given. Yeah, well, that's problematic if OSHA wants to give everybody uh, the the particular role only because the document says uh, if you're going to go for a legal defense against citation, that you can't be the correcting employer, you can't be the, um, well, you could be the control employer, but you can't be responsible for correcting this hazard. You can't be the creating employer. Uh, so now if you have an exposed worker and you're going to go through the steps of legitimate defense that says, you know, I told everybody that there's a hazard over here and in extreme cases, I did something to protect my workers or we got off the site. Uh, so now that's your that's supposed to be a legitimate defense against citation for a multi-employer site. So truly, if OSHA is giving you those roles of saying you are a correcting employer, then you can't qualify for that. Uh, or if you are the creating employer, then you can't qualify for that. So that that seems problematic to me. 
Well, and if you're the if you're the general contractor, your frustration is this: the two elements or the two points that are made in the multi-employer citation policy on a controlling employer is number one, you have control over the work, the scope of work. Number two, you took reasonable care. Well, there is a bit of a tension between those two. Because to the extent you have control over the scope of the work, you want to take reasonable care, but you don't want to control so much that a sub's area of control has now been invaded and you now own more than you should. That is always a tension. And that's why you see in contract terms, and I'm no construction lawyer, but when you look at uh, contracts in the construction world, you'll see an allocation of safety responsibility is to try and keep those lines drawn as well as can be done. Yeah. No matter what, I have seen the trend I have seen. I don't think I've ever seen this written up anywhere, and I can't prove this statistically. But my experience is that OSHA is really getting more and more interested in bringing in the GC no matter what. Yeah. And so I think the GCs would be a uh, word to the wise for my GC friends is to uh, be aware that OSHA, I think, is taking more of a, a view and Perhaps it's well-founded, I don't know, but perhaps it is the view that ultimately the GC makes sure that folks get paid and the subs get paid. And so we're going to have the buck stops here go to the GC no matter what they say about assignment of responsibilities for safety. Okay, that, that makes sense to me. Uh, I've always told students that OSHA can't shut down a job because uh, they don't have the jurisdiction for that. However, they could do it through if they have um, uh, a, a court order, then I would imagine that would be the case. Am I wrong in, in that? Have you seen cases where OSHA shuts down the site? It's so rare. It really is. And that's it's interesting that there, again, is this paranoia and this fear that, oh, my goodness, OSHA is here. They're going to shut us down. Well, again, they're not law enforcement. They don't have the unilateral right or unlimited right to be able to come onto a job site. They certainly do not have the right to shut down a job. But I would say that if you have employees, and imminent, here's the circumstance in which it would most likely happen, imminent danger, and that danger is visible from a public place, then you can expect those, I think, that perhaps even call local law enforcement and say, we need help. We see folks on that roof, not tied off, and we need that to stop. Somebody's going to get hurt. And then they can go get that. They could also get a warrant fairly quickly. Warrants are not that difficult. Um, but I think that it would may not even be necessary. You might even get an approval for a warrantless search with imminent danger. But it is incredibly rare. And I would imagine that rare could eventually be because how long have they been on the roof? Uh, how is it imminent danger? Because they could have been there like all day long, but you're only seeing them, you know, three hours into their work day. Uh, unless you witness someone who's visibly stumbling, you know, uh, then, then that might increase your imminent danger because now you're seeing somebody that, that looks like they're going to fall. Well, and that's, and that's a warning to the roofing industry. And I've had some, you know, I have some clients in that industry and the warning is, is very clear. It's you, you, the job you do is visible to everyone. And OSHA compliance officers are people that have to drive from home to work. And if you have if you have a roofing job on that route, you are going to be subject to additional scrutiny. 
Uh, in fact, recently the Tampa office had a roofing job done and I just laughed about that contractor. I'm like, who, who got the job of being the roofing contractor on top of the building where OSHA sits? Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> great. Well, hopefully it's Evan's roof because they're uh, VPP. <laughs> I think they're the only roofing contractor in the U.S. that's VPP. Evan's roofing, uh, uh, I'm recalling right. That's the, the, the actual roofing company. Um, is there still the, the thought with legitimate defense of against your, your regular citations and a, um, not the, the multi-employer citation where you have to hit your four criteria, such as I have a safety and health program. It's disseminated in the language and understanding of my workers. Um, uh, three is uh, that I have a system in place to discover if there is any kind of violation of my program. And number four would be uh, that I have a history of holding people accountable when my laws or my rules have been broken. And now you have a legitimate defense against citation saying that what OSHA observed at the time of this inspection was just one rogue worker. <laughs> it doesn't, it's not representative of our company. And here's why by these four uh, criteria. Is that still a thing? It is. And what you have described uh, is the unavoidable employee misconduct defense. And if I were the king of the world, I would rename it. And I would rename that defense to the, it really is from the employer's perspective, the I did everything I could to avoid this accident defense. Because think of the elements you just listed for us, Sheldon. It's not about what the employee did or didn't do. It's everything is about what the employer did. So before a client ever says to me or breathes the words, employee misconduct, rogue employee, he wasn't wearing his PPE, he wasn't wearing a seatbelt, we're going to ask a lot of questions that you just asked. We're going to ask a lot of sub-questions and follow-ups because if we can nail those elements, then I'm going to show OSHA those things. But the one thing I won't do is I won't say employee misconduct. Because if you want to make your inspection go poorly on day one, the first thing you do is point the finger at the employee. Yeah. So let's not do that. The first thing we do is we say, look, dear OSHA compliance officer, we have done everything we could do. See our program. See our training. See our auditing process and whereby we make sure folks follow the rules and look at these write-ups where we make, we, we make sure and, and, and follow up on it that we hold our employees accountable. We don't know why this happened, but we did everything we could. And the co-show will get to those words. The co-show will say, so what you're saying is you did everything you could and the employee, you're asserting the employee misconduct defense. My response is always, no, I'm just saying there's nothing else we could have done. Now, if we litigate this, yes, we'll call it that because that's what it's called. But we really did everything we could do to make sure this person did not lose his or her life. Wow. Well, that's a good way of putting it. I know you're limited on time. I was going to try to squeeze in another question regarding COVID-19. And I'm expecting your phone to be going off the hood now that uh, that, that ruling came out yesterday. Uh, Truly, from the advisory committee, if uh, those of you haven't seen it, this is March 3rd, 2021, the day of uh, recording. Uh, just 
It's two things that go with this. First, uh, President Biden's executive order that says OSHA needs to start reviewing everything they've done with COVID-19. And if they determine that an emergency, uh, emergency standard, temporary standard is necessary, they got to do it by March 15th. And then we have this, uh, ruling that came back that says OSHA needs a temporary standard. And most of this stuff is being regulated through, uh, respiratory protection through OSHA 300 and, uh, well, record keeping rules and then also 5A1, which is the you, you know better rule. <laughs> That's what I call it. You know better. <laughs> so I'm expecting somewhere along the line that Philip, you're going to end up getting a whole bunch of calls related to enforcement efforts with this one. What we are, and look, what you're describing, you're talking about the Inspector General report yesterday, and I think you're looking at this exactly the right way. When you look at uh, Joe Biden's, one of his first executive orders was on COVID-19, and it was that order that said, OSHA, I want you to consider, and by consider, I mean, I want you to do, there was no consider to this, although it was worded that way, I want you to have an emergency temporary standard in place by March 15th. So we expect that's going to happen. We're even more convinced it's going to happen after the Inspector General report yesterday that was critical of OSHA for its response or, according to the IG, lack of response to the pandemic. Those two things together, absolutely guaranteed by March 15th, we will get an emergency temporary standard. The key being the T. It's temporary. It only lasts six months. So, but it can be renewed. Now, we'll see how this is going to happen, but 2021 is going to be very interesting because at the same time that is going on, we also have uh, three vaccines that are available, three different vaccines. We have more and more states uh, and local air, local governments opening to business uh, and numbers seem to be going down. So is OSHA going to be able to maintain an emergency and temporary standard or is this, here's my, my, keep an eye out on this point is Congress. Is it going to get kicked back over to the legislative branch for them to do something? Um, and now you get into discussions of the filibuster, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but in any event, no, we are about to get um, really busy. I mean, what I've told folks is look at, in order to, what do you expect to come from it? You can absolutely look at OSHA's most recent guidance with their 16 things you're supposed to have and uh, are supposed to do. You can look to Virginia, California, Oregon, Michigan. You can look at those states and see what was done. But I would also say look at those states from the perspective of what were their numbers. Did it make a difference? Stricter OSHA activity, I don't think, demonstrably made a difference in those states. I think it is misleading to look at that that inspector general report and conclude whether OSHA was effective or ineffective based strictly on just the number of inspections. Yeah. I think that's misleading. Yeah. And, um, and I, I, I do share that as well. Cause truly i see a lot of, um, a lot of my students there throughout the whole, the whole country and some international, but throughout the, the U S they have many different workplaces. So if you're looking at everything through the eyes of, meatpacking facilities or through the eyes of assembly fields or even warehousing with a whole bunch of uh, moving parts. And you have a packed warehouse with no way of doing social distancing or assembly lines. All right. Then it's a high likelihood that if you see a cluster of workers that are now exhibiting symptoms 
uh, chances are, yes, you could prove this is being a, a, an outbreak point. But however, it's still a possibility that it could have been somewhere else. So now you've got to really figure out uh, without true contact tracing, uh, then this is going to be so hard to not only prove and to enforce, but then if you're regulating it, even OSHA's guidance, the only thing they said about mandatory mask wearing was um, was that the customer <laughs> should wear their mask. And I thought that was really weird that that's the only wording instead of the employer, but that's the way they worded it. So uh, I'm really, I've got my eyes wide open on this one too. Well, what's interesting to me too, when you look at that and, and just see, you know, the, the, it, this really gets a matter of what you think government's role is in society and in business. And the view from the inspector general report is very much the, the view that government should do more uh, than what it did. But it's interesting when you read the details of that report, because one of the criticisms is that OSHA didn't do enough on-site inspections. Well, wait a minute. If you really think the threat was that big, why do you want OSHA to send its officers in the field more? So it's a little bit disingenuous, I think, in that regard. I, I laughed at that part. I'm like, okay, so you don't think you think they did not enough on-site inspections in the middle of a pandemic? You think that was worse, you know, than than the government's response to it was before? How do you resolve that? Yeah. Uh, nobody's gonna, nobody's going to answer that question. And not yet. <laughs> They, yeah. really they, they can't yet. Uh, how do people reach out to you and and uh, and again give us your, your specialties and then uh, your phone number and and emails and LinkedIn and all all the places they can reach you. Well, and thank you, Sheldon. I appreciate it. And I've thoroughly enjoyed this time today. And, and as you can tell, I do love what I do. Yes. And uh, I think it's uh, I think it's a lot of fun to to go out there and really make a difference in the, in the, in, in people's business and people's lives. So I am on LinkedIn, and I've actually got a uh, commitment this year uh, so far, so good, to post every day something about OSHA law. And so I have been doing that. I'm easy to find. It's Philip B. Russell on LinkedIn. Just Google me. You'll find me. I'm fairly easy to find. I don't hide. Uh, I'm at Ogletree.com as well. My email is Philip with two L's, T-H-I-L-L-I-P dot Russell, R-U-S-S-E-L-L at Ogletree.com. O-G-L-E-T-R-E-E.com. And go to our firm. I mean, go to the webpage at Ogletree.com. Sign up for our newsletters and announcements there. Follow me on LinkedIn. Send me an email. And uh, as I said, I'm not I'm not hard to find. I don't hide. Well, there's also a, a Philip B. Russell that's, uh, I think, a NASA engineer. <laughs> Did you know there's that? also, well, not only that, I also have noticed that through my Google alerts, there's apparently a, a really good high school, now college basketball player somewhere in the Midwest whose name is Philip B. Russell. But I'll tell you a real funny but odd story is when I was a 15-year-old teenager working in a fast food restaurant growing up outside of Atlanta, there actually was a murder of a Philip Russell working in a fast food restaurant on the other side of Atlanta. And so for a few days, some friends thought I had been murdered at work. Wow. So strange, strange, strange that it was the same name, same spelling. Wow. I think I'm good. There's no Sheldon Primus. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, my friend, I will tell you, there is no Sheldon Primus. I love what you do. I know you're a, you're a, you're an advocate and you're a passionate advocate for safety of workers and 
and how you do it is, is just really magical. And I love following what you do and what Kevin does. And so I appreciate you guys. It was an honor to be with you today. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time, and especially in such short notice. So thank you. Enjoy the rest of your day. You too. Take care. Be safe. This episode has been powered by Safety FM.